You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends. If you're like me and you spend a little time reviewing the landscape of just the environment of, let's just say, of life right now, you end up scratching your head, maybe uttering under your breath some language that you probably would never share with anybody else, trying to figure out, gosh, how did we get here? How did we get to a place where leaders of legendary institutions of higher education have a difficult time helping us define what uh, you know hate speech is uh, they 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 have they tell us that you know it's a contextual thing and i could go on and on and on and i use that reference because of this we have people in positions of leadership and authority that have great influence over many people, sometimes legions of people, even countries. And I've, I can't speak for you, but every once in a while I scratch my head and go, gosh, is, is that the best way to approach that? Where did you learn that? Who is your mentor? Who helped you develop the skills that you use as you help direct the efforts in the future of others? And I don't mean to judge, be judgmental, but I just sometimes find myself scratching my head. And I, I don't want to be judgmental because I'm not qualified to do that. That's for somebody else. But I scratch my head. But today, I have the great pleasure of having joined me on Mike's Seminary and Friends is an individual that I've had the great pleasure of knowing. We've become dear friends. In fact, I love the man, love his family. But I really have, from the sidelines, many times had the great pleasure of watching him, observing him, watching him lead, watching him mentor, watching him communicate with members of leaderships of communities. And this is the kind of guy I'd follow because he's the real deal. It gives me great pleasure to introduce to you, to Mike Seminary and friends, my dear friend, Dr. Carl Sovak, and Carl is the dean of the Gary Therrelson School of Business at the University of Mary in Bismarck, North Dakota. Carl, welcome to Mike's Seminary and Friends. It's great to see you. How are you, my friend? I'm wonderful, and I thank you so much. I mean, that's a, a, a glowing thing that I say, how do I even live up to something like that? And, uh, you know, I, I'm the one that's in awe of uh, the way that you have been, because I think that our time together has just been uh, immeasurable in terms of not only friendship, but just the things that we've accomplished. And certainly you've accomplished a heck of a lot more in your time as mayor and in and, and all the capacities that we've done things together, disrupt well and those kind of things. So, you know, I, I'm just honored and blessed to, to even be having this conversation and um, just sharing whatever we're able to share and, and get some points across. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the the kind words. We could probably just can it right there, wrap it up and move on <laughs> to, an, you know, but we won't do that. I, I want to start from um, this perspective, it, kind of the way I opened it up. Leadership, mentorship, the ability to connect, to be able to sit down and listen to someone without judging. 
um, the ability to be across the table from someone that uniquely different than we are, totally different backgrounds, but connect at the heart. And you're at an institution where that's what kind of what that's all about. But more importantly, you are that guy, Carl. Walk me through, because I know some of your entrepreneurial background. Obviously, I know a lot more about you as we connected in 2007 to the present day. Where did you learn the importance of the leadership style that you try to convey to not, not to student body, but to everyone you come in contact with? Tell me that story, if you wouldn't mind. You know, I, I've always, and, and I've reflected back on this a lot in my life. I Those people who say, oh, my father was a great influence on me and the greatest man that I ever grew up with. And I think to a point that's true. I lost my dad in February of this year. We reconciled. We didn't have the best relationship uh, for most of, of my adult life. And uh I wish I was able to say, you know, that's where I got it from. Uh, I wish I was able to say that I got it from my grandparents, but I really wasn't around them that much. Um, so it was something that when I graduated from high school, I knew I needed to mature. I, I, I needed a maturation process that was like none. And I joined the Air Force, right? You go, that's what you do when you know that you need to mature. And uh, so I joined the military. I joined the U.S. Air Force. And uh, I was I graduated when I was 17. So I turned 18 in July. My mom wouldn't even sign for me. I told her I want to join the Air Force. She said, I'm not signing. So in July, I turned 18 and went in and, and signed up for the Air Force. And I got stationed at Minot Air Force Base. And for some people who would think, OK, well, you know, that's no big deal. Like nobody wanted to go to Minot Air Force Base. When you got stationed at Minot Air Force Base, it was that was it. You got there. And I, they never sent me anywhere. So I started going through school. I started mine at state because I knew they weren't going to send me anywhere. I didn't really, I can't say that the military life gave me a leadership. They gave me a lot of how I didn't want to be. It was very command and control, micromanaging. And I knew I didn't want to do that. Um, father was was much like that. <laughs> so you grow up with that and then you say, okay, I need to be matured. And you go into where there's nothing but command and control. But out of that, I came out and I said, okay, I had I did mature. I'm I'm a much different person than when I went in, which is good. Um, what can I do that would allow me to be able to continue with that in that maturation process, but kind of be my own person, learn who my authentic self was, and grow into that authentic self. And so you start your own business, right? You do the opposite. You go to command and control to where nobody's going to tell you what to do. Nobody's going to tell you when to get up, tell you how you need to do things. You're going to be your own boss. And then I learned really, really quickly, the customer is always your boss. You you need to make sure that you're pleasing someone. And it was in that moment that I started doing a lot of interior work and saying, what do I need to be the best version of myself? Um, and I think that that's where right after I started that, I, I was in the insurance business, but it was more about how do I help people? I didn't, I never saw myself as an insurance agent. It was like, how am I going to help people? And it was about probably 10 years into the business when I got a really good mentor from the insurance world that asked me, you know, what's your process? And I told him, and he says, you're doing it all wrong. And, and of course, when I was teaching sales, 
I tell the students, I will give you the magic to sales at the end of the semester, but you're going to learn all these things that you need to learn. And and his whole thing, very, very simple concept. And so I hope anybody who listens to this, that they're in sales, they really start adapting this. If it, if it passed on, I know that it made an immense difference in my life. What will it take for you and I to do business? It was a very simple, very simple thing. But in that light, I got one of three answers. And one answer was, you and I will never do business. I don't care for you. I don't like you. I don't, whatever it would be. And I would gently slide the card across the table and say, okay, if that should ever change, give me a call. And I'd have people rip up my card and write in my face. Like I told you, you and I will never do business. So that's a maturation process there as well. It's a very humbling experience. But then you'd also get the person who says, you know, I, I really don't have a need for anything for, that you're offering right now. And he would gently slide the card across the table and say, all right, if that should ever change, give me a call. And you would get a lot of phone calls. You know, my brother is in this business or or I really like my other agent and I want to stay. Okay, cool. If that changes, let me know. And it would change. Brother would leave the business or they didn't handle a claim properly. The third one, though, was, well, you'd have to put it in there. Save me money. Give me better coverage, whatever it might be. And say, okay, that's my opening. And so I made it very, very simple to start knowing that sales was a relational occupation before it was like, oh, just get out there and just knock on as many doors and ring as many phones as you could, cold call, whatever it took. I was wasting a lot of my time. And so that was part of what I think is my leadership formation was what interior work do I have to do on myself so that more people wanted to do business with me? They didn't. I got less and less of those, you and I will never do business answers. It would be one of the the latter two. And from there, I learned it is, it's, it's all about influence. It's how you make people feel. It's the old John Maxwell. It's not what you say to people. It's how you make them feel. And if I made people feel real, real good about themselves, they would want to do business with me. And if I made them feel bad about themselves, they wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. So it was a very simple thing to say, I just want to be liked and I want people to like me. Then I started learning that that's a temperament thing that I'm born. And if you get into temperaments, I'm born a sanguine. I'm a people person. I like to please people. And I don't like when people don't like me and I'll go out of my way to make sure that everybody likes me. And, and I love to be a life of the party and all of those types of things. And so I slowly learned that that's part of the leadership process as well is one, understand yourself, know how you were created and what you were created for. And then you're constantly asking that question, okay, God, what do you want from me? And it took me a long time. I, I have to be honest, Mike, I probably didn't ask that question until I started at the University of Mary, and I've been with them now 21 years. Um, and that was Sister Thomas, probably the greatest. Uh, I have her book right here um, by my side every day, the, the Dignity of Grace. That person, I'll probably choke up talking about her. Um, she go. hired me. <laughs> She hired me and uh, she taught me so much about what it takes to be a person and how to find yourself um, being directed in the right order, getting getting your life in order, being ordered to the right things, and then being rightly ordered to the highest good, which is your, your relationship with God. Um, your relationship with Jesus Christ or, or whomever you want to believe in that higher power that you want to believe in. So to me, like I said, I didn't have any of that. Uh, I was a latecomer into the game, into higher ed. 
But man, when I ran into Sister Thomas, it just clicked like that in my life. And I would say it took me that long. Uh, you know, so 21 years, I'll go back. I was, what, 45 years old when I started higher education. And that's where I find my mentor for leadership. And so, like I said, I know a lot of people with long-winded answer to your question, but a lot of people would like to refer to, to parents and grandparents and that it really was Sister Thomas who, who laid the foundation, uh, helped me to recognize who I was and helped me to recognize, you know, you have a talent in there. God wants you to bring it out and give that gift to others. Find a way to do that. Next time we're together, I'm going to share my dad's story with you because it's very similar. Not from here, went into the service, ended up in North Dakota, went into sales. Somebody helped him with what that was all about, stayed here. By the way, Carl, I can't say 100%, but I'm pretty sure you're the only person that I have visited with that wasn't from North Dakota in the service, ended up in Minot. And during that description and what you just shared, you didn't say, how in the world did I end up here? And most of them say, how did I end up here, right? I had to go back to Sister Thomas Welder. I, I think she was president for I don't know, 30, 31 years, which is 32, somewhere up there. Yeah. She had a long run. I had a band, well, a number of them, but the last one, Kids out of Fargo. I shouldn't say kids. I was in college. We got hired to go play something at the University of Mary. Dr. Miller was the president at the time. Now, this is 1975. Here are a couple of things I remember. First of all, we had to learn the song Feelings. <laughs> we were a rock and roll band. You know, Steely Dan, Free, you know, that kind of, you know, Feelings. We ended up playing, I think, seven or eight times. It was awful. The other thing I remember is I met this person, Sister Thomas Welder. Now, in 1975, Carl, I had hair to my shoulders. I moved to Bismarck in 1985. I no longer have, well, now I have no hair. But in 1985, <laughs> I did not have hair to my shoulder. I looked... In just completely different. And about a year after I arrived, I get involved in chamber work. I walk into a meeting, and this woman comes across the room and says, Mike Seminary, it's so good to see you. At first, I wasn't sure who it was. It's his sister, Thomas Walter. Carl, 10 years had passed. I looked completely different. Like that, she remembered my name, and here's what I learned about her. She may be the most other-centered person I've ever had the great pleasure of meeting in my life. And then she, I don't know if she ever forgot a name, ever. I don't think she did. <laughs> so Sister Thomas Welder had a great influence on your decision on changing how you develop yourself and then eventually use what you learn to help influence and direct and coach, mentor, train, educate others, right? Absolutely. You know, she she's the one 
that that really taught me how to do interior work, how how to do an interior examination. Um, I I was very critical of myself. I think that came from a, a variety of different things, um, but but she taught me very quickly uh, that that interior examination doesn't mean that you demean yourself and degrade yourself, um, feel guilty, feel shameful about anything that you've done. It means to to get yourself, and like I said, this right order. She she really taught me how to order my life in the right way and towards the right things. And and once, I mean, it just, like I said, it just clicked. And, and if you were ever around her for even five minutes, you know, she was one that there was nobody else in the room when she was talking to you. She dedicated, she wasn't looking to say, oh, who's coming in the room next? Who's over there that's more interesting? When she was in a conversation with you, she dedicated herself. And that's what she taught me a lot in terms of my relationship going through academia was just to dedicate to the present moment, everybody that's there. You encounter a person for a reason and give yourself and your time and your attention to them. And the others can wait, you know, and, I, and I've learned, I've learned how to see somebody engaged in a conversation and to say, okay, I need to hold off on that because they're in a conversation with that person. And I, I don't want to interrupt and say, oh, I just wanted to say hello or whatever. Um, and, and I don't mind being interrupted that way because then I can go back to the person. Do you know this person? Introduce some things. But yeah, she she was just incredible with with the lessons that she would teach you. Uh, sometimes without even saying anything, you know, just by you talk about leadership by by uh, walking around and leadership by example. She was the epitome of that. You you didn't even have to. Again, the dignity of grace is the title of her book, and she was just filled with grace, and she wanted you to know. That, that your life could be grace-filled too. Yeah. One of the other things I wanted to accomplish, Carl, it will really give you the opportunity to do it. We're in this place in America with regards to the value of a four-year education. Should we go into the trades? And those are all very, very important, important discussions, incredibly important decisions. And... Education isn't inexpensive, but I, I wanted to focus not just on the great curriculum at the University of, of Mary, which is an inst institution coming up in the 65th year, I think, somewhere in there. And, um, but it's the leadership university. Would you mind taking a couple minutes to walk through, you know, you have great medical sciences curriculum, engineering, STEM, I mean, a lot of it. So if you, and then of course, the, the school of uh, business that you, you're the dean of, walk us through, if you wouldn't mind, the importance of the institution, the, the curriculum, but more importantly, the leadership role that the University of Mary plays for students in the art of the long view for their future. Sure. And, and you're correct. We were founded in 1959. Uh, we're sponsored by the Sisters of Annunciation Monastery. That's our direct um, relationship to the Holy See and, and Vatican in, in Rome. And, uh, you know, speaking of which, Monsignor Shea, then that, that leadership it gets us a, a campus in Rome. It gets us a campus at ASU. I mean, just his visionary lead. So I've been blessed with like two of the best leaders that you could ever have in your life. Uh, but that's that's probably chapter 
you know, 17, you know, so Sister Thomas and all the time that I had with her is one through 15 and then one senior is 16 through whatever's being written now. But you're absolutely right is that, you know, we we took our tone and it's in our mission. We take our tone from the Sisters of Annunciation Monastery who wanted to make sure that we provided for the religious, academic and, and cultural needs of the region. And when Monsignor took us to Rome, then we added and beyond in our mission statement. So we wanted to be the premier leader in, in religious, cultural and academic aspects that this region could really rely upon. And so we became America Leadership University under Sister Thomas's uh, tutelage. And we continue with that in a virtuous model now. And I can go into that, uh, why the virtues are important. And I, I teach a class on, on why the virtues are important. Uh, I also incorporate Catholic social teaching, uh, which we could talk about if we have some time. Um, but all of that comes in because right now it's the formation of, of students with moral courage. And you talk about a polarizing time. You talk about a, 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 a divided time. Uh, we seek to form our students to be able to integrate them into this secular culture um, that teaches anything but uh, selfless serving. It, it's, it's a very selfish environment that a lot of people are. And I think I, I, in a business school, I think that we are probably one of the only and, and I, I won't go on that record to be able to say that, but we are one of the only business schools that really teach other than a profit maximization model. And my belief there is that if you're only taught that, if that's the only thing that you're taught, maximize profit by any means necessary, that's what you're going to go out and you're going to do. And you're going to do it in any way that you can. Uh, but if you're taught that there's alternatives and we teach the good, good, good model. And I can go into that as much as you want to. But we, we teach that business is a vocation and it's a noble vocation. As long as you have virtuous leaders that are, are teaching the individuals how to be virtuous capitalists. Because I think capitalism is the greatest economic model that there is. But it also has to be held up with the virtues. And, and we talk about that prudence and courage and justice and temperance. Uh, as well as humility and magnanimity. And if we have time, we can go into all those aspects of the virtues. But that element in terms of that into the leadership is what we instill into our students. And when they leave here, or even before they leave here, they understand their role within society. They understand how important it is for them that whether somebody is doing right or wrong, whether somebody is ethical or unethical, it's them. They have to prove themselves probably on a daily basis, maybe on an hourly basis, um, that they belong where they're at and that they're going to do the right thing because it's the right thing and they're going to avoid the wrong thing because it's the wrong thing. And and really that's, again, part of the ordering, the right ordering that Sister Thomas instilled that we now have in here. Um, when I first became dean, uh, and this is my fourth year as dean, uh, I wrote a what I would call a manifesto called a mission-driven Catholic business education. And I instilled that on my faculty. And one of the areas was to form my faculty to be great role models, be the visionary individuals, to be the people that you want people to be. And if they, if students didn't have that to fall back on, if we taught them one thing and then they see a sloppy drunk down in Peacock Alley, they'll say, what a hypocrite. What, what, what's that person teaching me? 
But if we could be the role model, and I'm on I'm on 24-7, Mike. I mean, I'm the University of Mary 24-7. I cannot talk this way and then go out and act in another way, um, whether it's on a golf course or whatever it might be. And so, you know, that's one thing that we instill into our students as well, you know, that, that you're always on. You're always representing, and, and you got to know who you're representing because you never know who has their eyeballs on you. And so that was part of the leadership process that we took really from the sisters, you know, the, the, the aspects of Benedictine values of prayer and moderation and service to others and respect for others, and hospitality, and all of these things that, that were instilled into us, we embed into our students. And, but we say that's not enough, right? We can't say, we're just going to give you the technical skills that you need, and then we're going to form you to be a good steward we have to be an example for them how to do that because they need to know, well, okay, what does that mean? So we model it. We model that behavior. And we say, this is the way, this is what it means. This is what it means to be a virtuous servant leader, giving of yourself to those in need. And that's truly what charity is all about, willing the good of the other for the sake of the other and nothing more. It doesn't matter what I get out of it. It's, is that other better off? And, and that's where real love comes in. And, and our students are instilled with that on a daily basis. So the time they graduate, that's embedded into them. And I think that's our, our probably our competitive advantage, if you will. Mm. Um, I'm going to share a quick experience I had the other day with the, a, a young fellow. And use this then, if you wouldn't mind, Carl, to... I'll tee you up to if you want to go into a little bit more about the virtues and the good, good model, please do, because it's it's critically important. Uh, was visiting with this young man in his office. I, I say it that way because I'm old. So his young man, he and his partner started this business that they have, very, very successful business, 12, 13, 14, 50 years ago, something like that. And he's been struggling. He's a He's a person of great faith, and he's been struggling with what next? Where am I at? How much is enough? Um, those kind of things. And, and I, I shared my personal thoughts with him with regards to what I knew about him, about his heart, how he cares about people, his philanthropic uh, activities. He, you know, he he leads by example in all those. So don't beat up yourself. You know, he's going to tell you when to walk away from this. So. Um, it, use that this that quick story, if if you wouldn't mind, to go a little bit deeper into the good good model and the virtues. Yeah, so I became acquainted with the virtues in about 2014 with uh, Dr. Alex Havard. He's out of Moscow, um, and and he I was looking for you know because I heard charismatic leadership and I heard the servant leadership Dr Hunter came on campus but I was looking for something different I was like I I want to stand out I want to be a business professor that talks about something different came upon Alex's work I became a disciple of his very very quickly and and now when I teach I always say there is no other qualifying word in front of leadership but virtuous that when you apply yourself in terms of prudence every decision should have prudence if you're going to make a decision, you should have as much information as you possibly can. But when it comes down to the decision has to be made, you make the decision, stand by it. If it went wrong, you, you ask why it went wrong. And if you gathered enough people in there, um, 
One, you can point fingers and say it was your fault. No, you can't do it that way. That's not prudent. No, you gather as much as you can and you make a good decision. And if it doesn't work out, then you say, okay, where did we go wrong? And how can we make sure this decision doesn't happen in, in a negative way? Um, have courage, have courage. And that doesn't mean to run recklessly and, and do foolish things. It's, it's to make good calculated risk on any decision that has to be made, uh, to be temperate, um, be a good steward with the resources so that you're not wasteful. And then, of course, just make sure that every decision that you make or every move that you make is just. Uh, and, we, and we talk about justice being giving each their due. Uh, and so my justice to you might be different, completely different than, uh, say, someone who's homeless. Um, they have a different due than you do. Um, and then, of course, you have fundamental humility, which is a, a virtue that you need. A fundamental humility tells you who you are. Uh, who God has created you to be. And then, of course, you tackle that with fraternal humility, the desire to serve others, and then you become that person that God created you to be. And so my role as, as a virtuous servant leader is to make sure that I help you fulfill how what God created you to do. And and Alex tells a great story of Eric Liddell, who was, who was running uh, in the Olympics, um, and he was Jewish and he couldn't run on his Sabbath and he was a uh, long distance runner. And so then he was going to have to run like a 200 meter or something like that. And that's completely different when you're a long distance runner. You don't do those sprints. And I'm not a runner, so I wouldn't know these things, but I like the story. Um, and so um, they asked him, they said, you know, how were you able to do this? How were you able to win the gold medal in this? Because you, you didn't do this. Chariots of Fire is based on Eric Liddell's life. If you're familiar with that, some of the Older people will say, oh, yeah, I remember that. The others will say, I don't even know what you're talking about. But, um, <laughs> so so anyway, they asked him and he said, because God made me fast. But the line that's lost in that movie and in the book, if you read the book, is that and when I do that, it pleases him. So he wasn't doing anything, no, no, nothing that God didn't gift him with for himself. He was doing it because it pleased God. And when you put that out, and, and this is what I do, Mike, every day when I get up, God, how can I please you today? What, what do I need to be able to please you today? And then at the end of the night, when I put my head on the pillow, God, did I please you today? Did my work please you today? Did I fall short somewhere? Uh, and then I'm able to, to go through that, that iteration in my head of the, you know, the, the pluses and the minuses and say, thanks, thanks for, for, for being there for me. And thanks for letting me be a child uh, of, of yours and make sure that I don't do those those omissions again tomorrow and make sure that I fulfill my commissions tomorrow and, uh, and and I'll be here. I'll be I'll be your servant. And so I think that that's part of, of what you're, you're saying there with with any of these things. If you don't have those virtues in your life, you'll be a good person. There's nothing wrong. There's a lot of good persons out there. Uh, but if you really want to be a great person, if you want to be a virtuous servant leader, you really have to instill all of those in there. And then, of course, you have the theological virtues of of, of love and, and charity and generosity and kindness and all of those types of things that, that you can fall into. Um, but I, I think that it's all wrapped up in that. And again, I think the other thing that that happens when you talk about magnanimity is, is like a magnet. You attract 
people like that. I mean, Michael, you are a virtuous servant leader in my life because of the things that you instilled. And you probably don't even know half of the things that you've embedded into my life. I've, I've started doing better of letting people know, you know, like I said, I love you dearly. I love you like a brother because of the things that we've been through and we've done. But it's the things that you've instilled in me. I, I've been able to watch your leadership as as both mayor and, and as a community leader. And I'm like, oh, I, I wish I had that ability and I can, I can groom myself that way. Um, and so I surround myself with, with very, very, what I call virtuous servant leader people. And like I said, now I'm being tutored under Monsignor Shea, who is at, at if Maxwell's number level five. He's about seven and a half um, or higher. Um, to be blessed with those two types of leaders. And, and don't get me wrong. I've been blessed with very terrible leaders. Um, people that, I mean, just are vicious people. And you would think, how could you learn from them? You learn a lot. You learn a lot from the vicious ones as much as you do from the virtuous ones. And so we do, we try to instill that in everybody is like, we're going to be the example for you, but we had to do our own work to get to this point or we, we shouldn't be in front of you. And so every the students, I think, know whoever we put in front of them have kind of passed that litmus test, if you will. Uh, they've they've embedded into that work. And so my role now is really the formation of others. I help mm. to form others simply because that's what magnanimity is. I was created for greatness, but so were you. And it's my role to help you fulfill that greatness, plain and simple. Hey, thank you for the kind words again, Carl. I appreciate that. I hesitate to ask this question because I try personally not to be a person that looks back and say how I might have done something differently. But I'm going to go out on a limb and ask you kind of that question. We met when you, and I think this is right, we met when you were one of the co-founders of the Idea Center. Won't go into great um, detail. It exists in a different way, shape, and form today, I think. But it was originally intended to be this incredible incubator in Bismarck for entrepreneurs where they could gather, connect, and work with other leaders in the community, learn something, and try to move something forward. That's the best way for me to explain it. And you were one of the co-founders and were just a great uh, leader and mentor. And I think at one time I was one of the idea center mentor directors, whatever they used to be called. Correct. Based on your journey, uh, particularly the last four years, but going back to even when you were working closely with Sister Thomas Welder, is there anything you might do a little differently if you went back to 2007 based on all those things you just kind of shared? Would there be a way that you would integrate some of that to give those young entrepreneurs a, a different look at life? You know, I always say, and, and I've done that wonderful life look at, you know, the world would be better off if I didn't do this or whatever, and and, and not to the extent of what, what, what Jimmy Stewart went through, um, where you jump in water and say, okay, this is it, right? Um, but no, I've done that wonderful life thing. And, you know, I always take a look at that. When I, when I left the service, I could have easily went back to Ohio. 
if I would have done that, I, I certainly wouldn't have been where I'm at now. Uh, if I had accepted any other position, I had a chance when I when I first graduated from uh, my master's, uh, I was one of two finalists for a job out in California. And if I would have gotten that job, I would have never come to the University of Mary. And I would have never been able to teach in Rome. I would have never had been a part of the Idea Center. I would have never touched probably a, a, the thousands of students' lives that have been in my lives. And, and you mentioned the Idea Center. Dewey Teets was, was my co-founder with that. Another incredible man, another incredible mentor. I might not keep it together if I talk too much longer about him, so I, I'll move on from that. Um, but uh, all of these things are what shaped you. And I actually have a TED Talk. I said it's loaded. I'm not going to do it in Bismarck. I, I want to do it somewhere else, um, maybe not even Fargo, but it's on rejection. And it's that rejection is not fatal. Uh, I'd been rejected a number of different times and in, in a number of different ways. And that has helped shape me the way that I am. And so those are one of the things that you try to instill on, on people is to say, you know, this, this no does not define you. This, this rejection is not going to be a definition of you. And I think that that's important for people to understand is that as you're moving forward, you need to find a way to utilize everything that's come your way. Because if you try to to say, oh, I should have done this differently, I, I tell you this much, Mike, I haven't gotten there yet, but I will die without a regret in my life. That's my goal is to die without not having one regret in my life. I'm very fortunate. Like I said, there are things that I can cross off my list. You know, my dad and I reconciled probably a couple of years before um, he started becoming ill and, and doing these things. I was so blessed that we had these kind of conversations about our, our spiritual life. Um, he, he let me know that he had a little corner uh, that that he was able to, um, you know, read scripture every day and, and be a part of that in his life. Uh, and he knew that that was important to me. Uh, I, I would not do anything different. I would not engage in anything different because to me, then that takes away the authentic nature of, of where I'm at. Um, maybe been a little more intentional to do these things, but I, I think everything comes to you in time. Everything is there for a reason. Everything provides a lesson. Um, and one of the things that I think is more important, that, and, and I'm in the twilight of my career, um, maybe if there was something I could have done different is listen. Listen a lot more. And I'm getting much better. You might ask my wife and she'd say, no, he doesn't, he doesn't listen at all. But <laughs> I, am getting, I am getting better at listening and I'm getting better at embracing silence. Um, Monsignor took us on a silent retreat last May, one of the most transformational uh, events in my life. And you might think, you know, it's a week-long silent retreat. What could you get out of it? It was amazing. It, it was just an incredible experience. So, no, I, I really don't have anything that I could have done differently or that I would do differently moving forward. I do know that everything that, that has happened has happened for a reason. And while if, if any one of those things had changed, particularly if I didn't have a right relationship with God, if I didn't order my life to the highest good in my life, it's Jesus. If I didn't have that, uh, everything else wouldn't really matter. And so maybe doing those kind of things a little bit advancing and accelerating that. But even to this point, 
where, like I said, you knowing me from 2007 to knowing me today, you would almost have to say there's been a radical transformation in this guy. I mean, he's still the same cat that I see. He's probably 30 pounds heavier and, and he has a beard. Um, but there's there's a, an internal transformation that, that has taken place. And, and that has come through the trials and tribulations and the celebrations and the beauty of, of life. And when you learn to recognize the beauty of life, like I said, then you don't have regrets. And that's why I say I'm I'm working on that, that when I die, I won't have a regret in my life. Well, you just said something that convicted me. I have had a number of friends tell me, Mike, you have to go to DeMontreville. It's a place over in the Twin Cities area where they conduct the silent, the silent retreats. And I said, I'm not that kind of guy. I don't know if I can shut up for 15 seconds, much less a whole weekend. And I had a friend the other day ask me, have you ever heard of one of these? And I said, yeah, here's this place. And so he lets me know this week he's going this weekend. And I said to myself, the next time somebody mentions one of those, I think I'm going to book myself. So I'm going to book myself into one of those silent retreats. It's providential. You you accepted this, and you, by the way, you were an incredible dean, by the way, incredible person that became an incredible dean. You accepted this role and responsibility pre-COVID, about a year before, actually, somewhere in there. And, and you, you had COVID. How did COVID, you know, we're in North Dakota, and we did things a little differently than, you know, a good portion of the country, but how did that initial hit of COVID impact you and the institution? Let's just talk about you and, and your, your the uh, school of business, Gary Thelson School of Business. How did you turn on a dime and continue to deliver what you needed to deliver? You know, we've always had the hybrid model. We always had the ability, and that comes from our online presence anyway. We have some great online programs here. Uh, when that happened, we, we were 100% prepared. Yeah, it might have been like midterm, you know, March, I think it was when we when we really focused on that, that, okay, we got to send everybody home. We got to shut the doors here. And yet we were able to to do things. Zoom was quickly learned, although we had it in our learning management system. We had the ability to collaborate already, um, Skype, all of those different types. We used whatever model there was that we could use just to make sure that we engaged, continued to engage individuals. So we really didn't miss any class periods. Uh, we would have them in these sessions. You'd have all your little screens up there with people and you're making sure that they have their cameras on so they weren't falling asleep and didn't care if they were in their pajamas, but just to kind of be decent so that others would see them in, in, a, in a good light. We had all those. There was etiquette that we established that, you know, you, you we would put them into workout groups so that they could work together. And then we put ourselves into those breakout rooms and have conversation and bring them all back together and say, what'd you all talk about? We adapted to that very, very quickly. And then, of course, in that fall of 2020, we made a decision. We're coming back face to face. And, and we made that work as well. Again, that was great leadership on our part. Monsignor Shea was um, not that we were absent science or anything else, but it was like, we see the detriment of what not having classes can do. We see the detriment in learning. We were hearing all these different types of things. And 
when when part of your mission entails community, you better get back to community as quickly as possible. Yeah. And I think that that's what allowed us. We had we had families that said, no, we're not sending our kids back there. And we weathered those types of things. Uh, we also had families who commended us for bringing community back, not so their kids would get out of the basement or anything, but just because they realized there's a sense of community. They're getting something there at the University of Mary they couldn't get anywhere else, you know. And so you know, we resumed as quickly normalcy as we could. Uh, personally, it impacted me. I lost a faculty member. Uh, it was the saddest story. We we brought him up here. He didn't even get a, ch a chance to teach for us a day. Um, he got sick prior to. We brought him up here. He got sick prior to our orientation, uh, and he ended up passing away before day one of school starting. Oh, um, one of the hardest things you talk about leadership is like, okay, teach somebody how you deal with the loss of a of a faculty member. Um, and it wasn't, oh my gosh, how am I going to get his classes covered? And what are we going to, no, it was the loss of an individual that I could, took kind of personal response. I brought him up here. If I had not, it was one of those things you talk about. If I had not hired him and he wouldn't have come up here from Omaha and this, this, and this, and this, and I beat myself up and God finally said, Carl, no, that all of these things happen for a reason. And and so it was like I said that was that was one weathering of those types of things. Um, we got his classes covered. That was fine. Um, the other thing is I had I had an individual break contract, and I had to find a place to cover his classes and people. I had such a vast network of individuals that all it was was a phone call and yeah, Carl, I'll help you out. Um, none of those were like anything, but I think it would have been devastating to a lot of people who weren't in, and I, I'm not, I'm trying to say this with all humility, who didn't have the connections that I had, I think they would have struggled, especially if they would have said, tried to do it by themselves. And I was able to do it all because I knew the connections that I had. Um, so COVID, you know, I mean, there was monster monstrosities that happened, but a lot of it is that, God, I'm going to put this in your hands. I, I'm not going to try to take care of this on myself. Where do I go? What do I do? Who do I choose? And it was just like, boom, 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 boom. And it just all fell into place. And I'm just like, okay, glory to God, because it certainly wasn't me. And again, if if that's the way that you live your life and people start seeing that, they say, those are some pretty good decisions. They weren't my decisions. They were yeah. my direction. I took the direction from what I was given. By the way, I couldn't agree with you more, Carl, about the importance of community. We we were created to be in relationship with other people. We were created to be in community. And um, while I totally understand the important role that technology played during uh, the COVID period, not that I agree with the whole way it eventually played out, but I, I totally get it. But you, you can't put off too long the importance of connection with a human being face to face because it, that's healthy and it's hard to do that with technology speaking of technology how what are some of the most significant impacts over the past three or four years maybe looking forward how tech whether it's ai whatever it is how that's impacting and let's just talk about the positives that in terms of your delivery systems for education. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's we like I said, being a, an online platform early, one of the earlier um, innovators in that 
it was easy for us to make that transition, but it's it's much more difficult when you have so many other players in in the room and in the in in the industry. Um, but we try to stand on our own by saying there's a competitive advantage for coming to the University of Mary, and this is the type of holistic education that you're going to get. But sometimes it boils down to, you know, we just want to get done as quickly as we can and, and the least cost to us, uh, and hopefully have a good skill set. And, and if that's what they're looking for, then we're probably not it, right? We, we could be a good low cost and time to completion and all that kind of stuff. Um, but our programs, I think, are, are designed to help the individuals, help the practitioner. So like we started our cybersecurity program and it's just going gangbusters. Um, we are, I, I think a lot of people are struggling with, with the AI side of things. So I just like to go out there on record by saying to me, it's just another tool. It's, it's no different than what we've had in the past in terms of technology. And we just need to teach our students how to properly use, utilize that tool. You're not going to use a, a shovel to pound in a nail on your wall. And if we if we teach them a punitive way, like, oh, you did this, I'm going to punish you, um, then it's our bad. It's really on us to make sure that we're showing them how to utilize that in a proper way. If you want to throw in a couple sentences and say, hey, tell me if this is is good, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to say, here's my topic for the paper, write it for me and then turn it in. That's that shortcut is not the way that you you go about things. So, you know, we've struggled. We've got an AI policy written in our syllabus that, that the people have to follow. And there are a punitive aspects for it. But mine is let's educate these kids because when they get out in the workforce, uh, I just talked to somebody. They said they had a, to, a boss came to him and said, hey, I need a paper, gave the topic. And they said AI printed out and he turned it in. It wasn't that he would violated anything. The boss wanted this done and he had a certain period of time to get it done. That's what we're going to send our students out to, particularly in the business world. And so we can't tell them that AI is off limits. Don't learn it. We need to show them how to properly learn it. And it's no different than any other technology. We we had to teach our students, well, how do I turn something in on this LMS that you had, this learning management system that you have? Here's how you do it. How, how do I make sure that I'm available for class? And, and how do I make sure that I'm accountable for things? And all of these types of things. Technology is is there and it's going to continue to go through. Um, it's not the, the end of the world. But again, you just got to be good stewards with what you've been given. We've been very, very blessed with the technology that we have. Um, and, and it's just, again, showing people how to properly use that. And if you do that, everything will fall into line. Mm -hmm. If you, if you try to punish it away, you know, they're going to be just like your teenage kids. They're like, I was a teenage kid. You're going to be resistant and you're going to try to find loopholes and ways around things because it's just a, a world of punishment. So that's that's my take on it. And I, I employ my faculty to do the same thing. Mm. Be lenient, be gentle, make sure that you're you're teaching them the right way to utilize the tool so that they don't abuse it in a in a in a, in a bad manner. Carl, the you're the dean the Gary Therrelson School of Business. What a wonderful person and how he's contributed to our state and beyond such wonderful ways, by the way as have others. I'm in Fargo. I, I, I think you're located in the Butler Center, where you were, the University of Mary. Yeah, we're on campus. We're on campus. We we have our, our school on campus. In Fargo. We still have a Butler Center. Here, in Fargo. Yep, yep. It can, if, if I wanted to go to, uh, to the School of Business, University of Mary, could I do all of that right in Fargo at the Butler Center? 
you could. We we have if we have a large enough class starting, yeah, we do cohort classes that we start with. In the past few years, we just haven't had this sheer numbers. I think sure. our nursing program is still very vibrant there, uh, or our OT program is very vibrant there. Uh, but we just haven't had, like I said, there's a lot of players in the uh, fields, and we just a lot of them went online. And I think the pandemic pushed a lot of people online and they never wanted to return to the face-to-face. But yeah, we would we would be more uh, delighted to have have that Butler Center filled up like East Bay. I remember when I first started traveling to Fargo to teach some classes. Uh, we didn't want to use Ivan. We didn't want them seeing me on a screen. So we said, hey, let's let's go there. Um, one of our, our grad faculty members just did it last semester. Um, she, she drove to Fargo uh, one night a week just to conduct a class because we had some students there. So yeah, we're more than willing to make sure, again, we're here to serve the region in, in whatever capacity they need. And those are, those are the types of innovative things that we like to see. So whatever somebody wants, they want to put together a cohort, we're going to be there to provide for them. I'm going to ask you a question that has nothing to do with the University of Mary. And if it's a question you don't want to answer, I understand. I know you have traveled to the Holy Land a number of times. And I know your heart. You, you love everyone. How do we get through what's happening um, between our Jewish and Palestinian brothers and sisters? Take Hamas, those evil people out of. How do we fix this, Carl? You know, Mike, I, I have been blessed. I've been over to the Holy Land eight times. Um, I have really good friends in Israel. And I've been around Arabs and, and Jews, I've been around Palestinians and Christians, uh, Muslims. Um, there's a hatred in the heart of a lot of people. And it's amazing how the rhetoric and the hatred of, of some can influence the many. But there's a love of people as well. And so when I travel um, to Jerusalem, when I, when I travel to Tel Aviv, I see that love. And if we could focus on that, and again, I look at love, charity, however you want to look at it, willing the good of the other. And I think that we've got to get to that point where we start willing the good of the other for the sake of the other. And I've seen the communities. Uh, Haifa is a, a port city in the north. Um, again, Arab, Jews, Muslims, Christians, um, they, they all live together. They all work together. And so it isn't that it's impossible, but you have to show people those seeds, plant those seeds of love where... I will the good of you for the sake of, you know, Shalom, if you go back to Shalom, Shalom is the aspect of I have a right relationship with God. So when you would meet somebody and you would say Shalom and they would say Shalom back, it was, I have a right relationship with God. Oh, I have a right relationship with God. And that's how you would embrace yourself. We would start off on a common term. So Shalom was designed to as a universal aspect of love. And that's what we have to return to. We might have different gods. We might have different beliefs. We might have different systems that that push us through, but but hate can't be one of them. It ha it has to go through love, and I think that if more people were to see that aspect, one have a right relationship with God, and then have love that that willing the good of the other for the sake of the other, I think that you could solve that problem. I don't know that there's a two state solution. I don't know that there's. But but I do know that it works. I do know that I've seen portions of Israel 
where there are a lot of people living in harmony. And I think that's what we have to push out more than the hatred and the violence that we see on television or that we hear on any given um, broadcast. Once we get to that point where we're focusing on that, I think it doesn't matter where the tension is. Uh, we are seeing this in Venezuela right now. Um, you know, that's another area where it's it's very, very, that's going to get uglier before it gets better. Um, and Ukraine and, and Russia. Again, um, some very beautiful people living in harmony. That's what we need to start focusing on. And, and I think then we can start turning the corner on on getting rid of some of this violence and this hatred. Oh, thank you, Carl. You know, at the end of the day, hatred accomplishes absolutely nothing productive. Nothing. There's nothing of value that comes from hatred. In fact, well, Mike, it, it, it deteriorates. Yeah. Hatred deteriorates because it probably deteriorates both parties. Because if you hate it, if you say, Carl, I hate you. Now I'm going to start getting defensive and I'm going to start, and it's going to start deteriorating and eating away at me. So not only does it not add value, it starts to deteriorate. It's a, it's a subtraction of somebody's life. I was used to say, you know, I love everybody. I do. I mean, even the people that hate me, I don't necessarily like what they do. I wish they felt differently about me, but we're supposed to love period. That's it. We're supposed to love each other. Yeah. And uh, turn the other cheek, all of that. Magic wand question, Carl. You could wave a magic wand over the heads of every um, high school-age student that is looking for the best educational opportunity for them. And, and, I, and I'm going to say they're looking at a four-year. Um, and I don't mean to exclude other, but I'm, you're the dean at an institution that prides itself on four years and can actually get it done in three in some cases. Um, what's what's the one thing you want them to know about the University of Mary and specifically about the Gary Therrelson School of Business? Well, I think the, the biggest thing is it's experiential and relational. Uh, we're going to give you the experiences that you need in order to be successful in life. Uh, whether that's going into a secular life or living a sacred life, we want to make sure that that you have the experiences in your um, quiver, your arrows in your quiver that you need to be su significant. I won't say successful. I want you to be su significant in uh, the communities that you're going to serve. And then I, I think the the second thing that that we do really really well is is we help you to become a good steward to the community. We help you make sure that you're good with all the resources that you're going to be entrusted with, uh, whether those are human resources or financial resources or physical resources. Uh, you're going to have the ability to take on whatever you encounter in, in a, a virtuous servant leader manner. And you're going to come out of there. And like I said, you're going to have a significant impact on not only your life, but on the lives of others. And you may not ever learn about it. I run into people that I had 20 years ago. It, it's amazing now. And they say, Carl, I can't believe, you know, you told me this and, and here it happened or whatever. And it's just like, I'm so blessed when I get those conversations. And so we, we instill that into students. The formation of the whole person is the best portion of an education that you'll ever be able to get. And we guarantee that here at the school. It's not difficult for me. I have five kids 
And I tell prospective students, when you come here, I'm going to treat you like you're my kid. And I've got grandkids now. And so the grandfather love is a little different than the fatherly love. The fatherly love would tug at the ear. The grandfatherly love will put the arm around there and give a little squeeze on the shoulder and say, hey, you shouldn't have missed my class today. So I, I, I let the parents know they're going to be well taken care of. They're in good hands when they come here because we're going to send them away better than when they came here. And I know that they come here in an incredible way. And our role is really never to diminish anything that they come in here with, but only enhance. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the one thing that they'll walk away with. Um, certainly the connections that they'll have and things like that. But uh, really the formation of the whole person is, is our competitive advantage. And you really have to experience that um, rather than the rhetoric, you have to come in here and feel the love, uh, feel the care, feel the attention. Um, and, and I said, we invest ourselves in their success or their significance. And when you can do that for somebody, you make a positive difference in their life. Yeah. You marry, U-M-A-R-Y dot E-D-U, if people want to learn more. Any other yes. place they should go or is that the place? That's right. The, no, that's, that's, that's the good place right there. Yeah. Carl, thank you so much. I'm, I'm going to circle back to <laughs> your, you can't be in the Peacock Alley drunk and be a, a good example. <laughs> when you said that, it made me think, um, by the way, I'm sorry to hear about your father. Um, I don't think I knew that. Um, our good friend, Tom Regan. You remember Tom? I remember Tom. He was so special. Tom was a golfer, a good golfer. And he used to golf somewhat regularly with three pastors, Methodist. One was the head of a church in Mandan. One was the head of a church in Bismarck. And the other one was the bishop of the region. <laughs> and they're all golfing one day. Speaking of, you can't get drunk at Peacock <laughs> Alley and be a good leader at the University of Mary, right? So here, they're all teeing off. The two pastors and the bishop, every single one of them, shank. Bad, just an awful drive. And then Tom, who's a very good golfer, the same thing. All four of their drives stunk to high heaven. And the bishop said, well, Tom, as the only lay person among us, would you please utter the appropriate language? <laughs> so the, the reason I thought of that was your example is absolutely spot on. Whenever you're in public, there's somebody watching or there's somebody listening. And if you're going to be a leader, you got your leader, as you said, 24 7, 365. And that's the Carl I know, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Carl, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, you and your family have a blessed Christmas. I so appreciate our relationship. I really appreciate. Uh, what you've been doing with students and leaders and mentoring them, uh, because in the end, that makes this a better place for every single one of us. Thank you. And, you know, one thing, if I can plug one of our programs that we just started uh, is our doctorate in business administration. We're one of the only DBA um, doctorates in, in this region. Uh, and it's an incredible, it's, it's the same holistic program that you would get. So anybody out there that's looking to say, how do I take myself to the next step? That that doctorate in the business administration, um, you know, there's there's less than 1% of the population that have their doctorate to terminal degree. And, and we're putting out our, our first cohort that started a couple of years ago. Um, they're going through their dissertations. I'm chairing a couple of dissertations. 
You talk about people that are going to change the world with what they're looking at. Their perspective, again, is not that profit maximization model. It's how can I change the social fabric of our society so that there's not this division and there's not this polarization. Uh, some of the, the topics that they're looking at are incredible. And so, you know, anybody who has an inclination to say, what's next for me? I got my MBA or I got my master's in something. Look into the program. They can go to youmary.edu and check it out too. Just type in DBA or Doctorate of Business Administration. I, I'm really proud of that and what, what our um, chair has done, Dr. Jeff Moser has done with that program and the students that are in there. Again, we're transforming the lives of, of many people. And um, and so that program is just another extension. So our undergrad, graduate, and, and now our DBA programs are, are all doing the same thing. And that's part of our vision, just to make sure. And um, there's there's no better place for, for us to be able to do that than at the University of Mary. We we glorify God in all that we do, and and we proclaim the gospel in, in a lot of the ways that we work. And if that's the type of example that people want to be around, that's what they get. And we might not be for everybody, um, but the people that are here, we're, we're taking good care of them. So that's my my one big plug for, for our program. Beautiful. By the way, when you see Monsignor Shea, I just love. Uh, give him a hug for me and let him know he went to the seminary, but that hug is from the seminary. I will do that. I have the same thing. I think you know Bob Pope, and Bob Pope always tells me that. Just give him a hug from the Pope, and I said, okay. <laughs> you know, he's, he's just a special guy as well. Thank yep. you, Carl. Hey, God bless. Stay well. Have a great Christmas. And uh, when we cross our paths, lunch is on me. Amen. God bless. God bless. 